Before we get started, I wanted to share something with you. As you know, I recently partnered up with Natural Water, N-A-T-R-L. They provide high quality mineral water and not just that. They do it in paper boxes, which results in a 90% reduction in plastic use. For me, it was just a no-brainer to switch to them. As I mentioned last week, I'll be hosting a giveaway of a three-month water supply to one lucky winner. I'll be posting all the details on my personal Instagram page within the next week or so. So follow me on Stefan Runs DXB, S-T-E-P-H-A-N, and stay tuned. Now, today we have Dr. Shafali Verma on the show. She's a doctor, a wife, and a parent. She studied medicine and sports medicine, and she's worked with some elite athletes and continues to do so. She's also an integrated health consultant and owns her own integrative medical practice right here in Dubai. I really enjoyed this conversation as we go deep into how to optimize health, mitigate stress, find purpose, and much, much more. If you like the episode, please send it to someone, anyone who you believe will value it too. Happy listening. Dr. Shafali, welcome to The Forever Student. Thank you for having me. It's so good to have you. I think we've, so we've spoken on the phone. We spoke for an hour or an hour and a half and um, we really got along. And I know it's important to you um, that we did and that we have a conversation that flows and that obviously you can add value. Um, Could you talk a bit about your journey? I know it's a broad question, but a bit about your journey in the health and wellness space. And maybe if you want to introduce yourself a bit further uh, so that I don't oversimplify it to people. I mean, I think my my journey kind of speaks for itself in terms of what I'm doing. But like I have always kind of been in the sort of sporting, you know, from very early, you know, I played a lot of sports at school um, and then I trained as a doctor and my parents were both doctors. So as a good Indian girl, I think like that was something that, you know, was probably just introduced to me really early. I mean, I remember playing with dolls and then pretending that one had an appendicectomy, like at an age of like maybe seven, you know? Um, And then I went to medical school, uh, but I lost my dad in my final year of medical school. And uh, that was kind of really hard because my dad was actually in a coma for 18 days. And um, I was, it was a chance for me to be the relative of a patient. Um, and even though we were surrounded by doctors, my mom, my sister, you know, all my doctor uncles and aunts, they were all around, but I was really the daughter. And that really changed my perception of what I expected from the doctors. And so I was in my final year. It was hard for me to finish, but I did. My mom came, spent a long time trying to just get on course and I qualified. Uh, once I qualified, uh, and I did my house jobs, which is your year of registration, you do six months of surgery, six months of like medicine. I realized that I kind of wanted to hang around a lot more with the relatives and the NHS for me at that time didn't allow me to, you know, I couldn't really, you know, everyone was a bed number, hardly ever knew anyone's names. And that really, really was hard for me because I'd been on the other side and I was always that one on the grand round, like holding back and, you know, speaking a little bit more to the family. And then I started to be like asked to like break the bad news and you can go talk to them, you know them. Um, so communication was, became very important to me. And then there came a point where it's either I go down surgical training, like I was the only female actually in my batch that was encouraged to go down surgery. Um, and I decided I needed to take a break, you know, and I thought, okay, what's well, best for me to do is to actually do a master's in sports medicine because med- sports is what I love. It's part of medicine. And what's the worst that can happen? I'm going to tell somebody they can't play sport, but I'm not going to have to like deal with death and I'm not going to have to deal with sickness. And I found that just a little bit too much for me at the time. How did that impact you just on a personal level, like doing it must be so tough just breaking bad news to people, especially when it's that important. How did that impact you personally? You know, in most people, and I remember this when my dad passed away, like loads of my friends came to me and they would be like, you know, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. But, you know, when it hasn't happened to them, you kind of can't connect with them in that moment. So I kind of searched for people 
who had kind of gone through that. And I remember calling a friend of mine who was in um, Tokyo. Didn't know her that well, actually, but she was a friend of a friend. Um, and I just wanted to talk to her because I remember her losing her dad very similar to the way I did. And I just felt like I could just, I think I'd be able to connect with her. And when you break bad news to the families, it's often about like death, really, you know, or sickness or, you know, terminal disease and stuff like that. But having gone through loss, I feel like you call upon your own experiences and how you grieved and so on and so forth. And you create a connection. And that was, again, really important for me. I felt like I had more strength to do it because I had dealt with it. You know, I'd seen my brother go through his relationship with losing our dad, my sister, you know, and we all grieved really differently, you know, but you learn from the people you love and their experiences also. And I felt like it was something that I could, could and should, you know, I felt like I was kind of like the chosen one from the team because I had a story of my own, if that makes sense, you know? And so for me, but I felt like very clear that I don't think I could follow the conventional ways of doing things in the NHS at that time. Like I really felt like that was my end. Which is why you went into sports medicine as well. So I trained uh, as a sports physician like quite early because most people do it quite late. Again, I was actually the youngest and the only female in my batch who did it. Um, And that was amazing, you know, But, you know, it actually told me that the medical training wasn't complete for me because everything that I learned in sports medicine, actually, I never really touched in medicine. So, you know, first learning about, you know, ACL and MCL, you know, uh, like knee injuries, uh, for example, I hadn't really learned much of that in medicine. So it was interesting that I could already see holes in the system, if that made sense. Uh, And then I worked with, you know, the sports medicine, British team of Olympic doctors. We, I did, you know, London Marathon. I, it was the year of the Commonwealth Games in Manchester. So I was put into the, the boxing uh, sport. It wasn't my sport, but as a physician, it was great because you watched like how fast it was. I was really into sport. People were cuts and bruises and me going on the ring and checking them out and them coming in. And it was a really, really amazing experience to be part of the Commonwealth Games at that time. And once it was over, you know, I kind of, took a step back and I was like, you know, I, I need to take a break. You know, I need to take a break from medicine. And I actually took a break for a few years where I actually, you know, trained as an actor, actually. A lot of people don't know that. Wow. Um, I trained as an actor and I was in London for four years. I did a full-time, you know, degree course in um, postgraduate acting. And I think that was one of the key things that helped me communicate, you know, and who I am today um, because of that. <clears throat> and then. Um, really, that's when I met my now husband, David, and he was really into sports medicine. And um, he encouraged me to come back to sports medicine. We did things together. And then I met Charles Poliquin, which was one of David's mentors at the time. And Charles was just into functional medicine. He was into the body, like, you know, he was just so ahead of his time. Uh, and he talked about integration and, you know, to be lean, what does that mean and where the roadblocks are. And I got interested and he really encouraged me to go down the route of, at the time, functional medicine. Now I call it integrative medicine and looking at people from the inside out, because with my sports medicine came, you know, body composition, like athletes to perform well, the best body composition. And I started to see a lot of people for body composition. And I realized that what you look like on the outside and where you distribute your fat is related a lot to what's going on on the inside. And so I became really interested in how the body works. And I already had the knowledge of how disease works and how should it work in its best. And putting those together developed my own sort of concept of what functional medicine is to me you know, and it was actually David who encouraged me. He said, you know, you need to get back into medicine somehow, you know, what interests you? And he was just far too good at the musculoskeletal stuff that I kind of left it to him. He was just way advanced. He just knew so much more than me. He just could look at things differently, but I was really good in like, like the nutrition aspect and 
the people's aspect, the communication aspect, you know, breaking things, complicated things and putting them in like easy terms. And uh, then I developed like my clinic here in Dubai, really. Um, And they didn't really have licensing for integrative medical doctors. And, you know, I got my GP license and I was like, I don't know if this is going to work or not, but let's try half a clinic a week. And that's how I started. And over the years, and that's like 13 years now, uh, you know, we've just organically grown, you know. Could you talk a bit about what integrative medicine is and what functional medicine is? So integrative medicine to me encompasses functional medicine. So functional medicine is about looking at the root cause and they kind of steer away a little bit from sort of the drugs and the pharma kind of industry. Integration for me is knowing that there is a space for acute medicine. We have a space for conventional medicine. You know, if someone's really sick and they have a bacterial infection, you know, we need antibiotics. I'm not going to be like, no, you must never take antibiotics. You know, there is a time and place for everything. You know, same with, you know, when you break your leg, you need a surgical procedure. You need a surgical procedure. I mean, I'm not going to be putting you on an IV and expecting your bone to, you know, reheal. You know, it's not that way, you know? So I still refer to like, you know, gastroenterologists and rheumatologists and, you know, endocrinologists, because I want to make sure that we are safe. It's not about me. It's really about the patient, you know, and as long as we get the right, you know, people to the patient at the right time, that's really important. I think when we become too precious about our patients, having to keep them under our banner, otherwise we're going to lose them, we will lose them, you know, um, But with that, you'll also lose your reputation. So I'm very sort of, you know, I find it really important to treat everyone like I would my mom. What would I do if my mom was in that situation? You know, would I give them this supplement? Yes. Okay, I can sleep at night. This person is okay. Like, no, I'm not sure about giving my mom. Well, why am I sure about giving this person? You have to like, you know, when you deal with people's lives and trust, um, you've got to be extra careful, you know. And I think that for me over the years, uh, you know, and it's taken many years, I think, I feel like I've got it to the stage where I know that I can, you know, I can really sleep at night. You know, I, I really know that my, my, uh, my practice has run on my, the best intentions, but I've always been as dynamic as I can be. You know, if something's new out there and I research it, try it on myself, it works and it's different to what I used to give, I will change my protocol. You know, I won't stick with the same protocol. And when people ask me, well, why don't you use that? I said, well, this has just come on the market and I feel like it's actually more effective, you know, as opposed to, you know, and there's people who obviously say, you've been using this forever. Why don't you use this? It's better. Well, if it's not better, I'm not going to use it, no matter how cheap it is, no matter how. You know, there are people who, who message me and say, look, do you have any alternatives that are in Dubai of the supplement? Because I don't need sec- first best, maybe second best. I'm like, well, I don't deal with second best mm. because I want you to get better. I'll give my mom the best as I will give my patients. You may want second best because your health is not your priority. Your budget is your priority. That's not my problem. And then I made a really important decision that I was going to only recommend what I think is the best. And they can make the decision if they want to have it or not. Because if you start having second and third and fourth and fifth best, well, it kind of like creates that whole gray area. And medicine isn't that gray as you think. You know, if you want a result and you want it now, you want it done properly, use the best once. Why use second, third, fourth, two, three, four times? Eventually you're going to, you know, it's going to cost the same amount. Totally. And I think over the last 13 years, you must have, I mean, experienced a lot of different cases, Uh, your approach may or may not have changed. What are some differences in how you ran your clinic 13 years ago versus versus today? Maybe just in the way that you approach patients, maybe in in terms of other things. I mean, it definitely has changed. I remember when I first started, the first part of my, I would say the first one year was all about body comp. That's where patients used to come see me, come for weight loss. And a lot of the times I used to talk a lot about carbohydrates, you know, thinking that, okay, paleo was really new uh, at the time and you can lose weight. And I had great results with it. Uh, And I was 
I was, I probably would say, you know, for people who are my patients listening, I was probably really strict, you know? Um, and once I had my children and your lifestyle isn't as controlled as you want it to be, because you can't, you know, you don't know of all the things that can go wrong. I realized that over time I became less and less strict and I could understand from patients and I evolved that I changed that. Um, and then when I started like CrossFit, for example, in the last like whatever, however many years, I realized that for performance in CrossFit, I actually need a lot more carbs. So it's kind of like changed even in terms of the way I look at the macros. You know, you go through learning about keto, you understand, you know, what keto means, but you realize that it's not good for everyone. Same, you learn about intermittent fasting and, you know, some people do really well on it, but not everyone's going to do really well on it. And now I think the biggest thing that I've learned is the way I take history. And that's changed for a long time. I wouldn't say it's been the last like four or five years, but I would say over the last, you know, eight, nine years, I've become extremely uh, more diligent in my history taking to really get to know the person in my first consultation. Because, you know, two people can come in with exactly the same symptoms, but they have a completely different story. They have a different personality. Are they going to be able to do the same things that I suggest to them? Maybe not, you know? So I've become a lot more individualized in my um, history taking and therefore obviously in my recommendations and timing of things that I, you know, recommend. Maybe that's not your priority. Maybe this is your priority. The other thing that I would say that's changed a lot is Back in the day, I would maybe give you, I don't know, five, six, seven things to do. And I'll be like, look, if I give you 10 things and you do one of them, that's success. If I give you one thing and you don't do them, well, that was a waste of time, right? Now I kind of offer fewer things, but I give more education towards those things. So the likelihood of compliance is there. Why do you think that the likelihood of compliance has increased because of that? Because I think that to give, it, it's less overwhelming. And I tell my patients this, we don't need to use all our secret weapons at once. That's something that I say all the time. You don't need to use all your secret weapons at once. Try this one. It'll work, it'll work for a bit. And then if it doesn't, we can go on to this one. The thought that you have several things in your like box that I can use, you almost feel like you haven't failed because we can use so many things. And psychology is so important for, um, patience and change, you know, and as adults, I think, you know, it becomes difficult for people to see where, how will I change this? Where will I put it? Where, how, well, that means to have to change it for the whole family. And it becomes very overwhelming. And I think if you, as the one who's advising can be empathetic towards, yes, this might be difficult, but why don't you try one? And that's okay. And I'm giving you the okay. They will feel they can do it. Yeah. You know, and I also think that like, again, like I keep repeating this, but one of the biggest things that I've realized is important is communication. If you can communicate well, you will create a good connection. If you create a good connection, likelihood is compliance will be there. And if compliance is there, your results will follow. And I think if communication is up to par, one of the things, at least that would happen with me, if I'm the patient is one, I'm more likely to open up to you about things that, you know, may or may not be important. But I feel like in health, maybe in conventional medicine, something that's overlooked is emotions, right? Like, like the importance of what's going on in your life. 100%. That's impacting your body. Is that something that like, from the outset, when you first got into your practice was already something that was important? Or has that evolved over time as well? You know, I, I think it has been important, but it has also involved. Like I've always found it important because of my own journey. So talking to other people has always been important. And I was, I would probably say I had digestive issues my entire life until the age of 28 uh, and no one could fix me. And I remember my dad taking me twice and I almost had surgery twice, if not three times. I remember at the age of four lying to the doctor because they'd kept me nil by mouth because they're almost going to do surgery. And I just wanted that toast and I lied to them. Like I remember, so I've always had some kind of disconnect with the current system and then losing my dad and my dad being a surgeon and all the other things that went wrong, I really 
cared about people who walked in. And I think that's why I probably came into like medicine. But now, having had my own children, I feel like the psychology aspect is probably just as important. You know, when I hit 40, I decided that I needed a purpose and purpose became really important. And one of the things that I really wanted to educate on was the physiology of stress. Like what happens to the body when you're stressed, as opposed to, we both can talk about, wow, we're so stressed and it's become kind of like a a status symbol and everyone can be stressed and it can be so common, but it's not normal. Yet the body will break down. There's an accumulative effect of chronic stress and nobody really is aware of it. So if you start actually talking about it, people won't use the word so easy. And if even if they are stressed, they will look for reasons why or how to just, decrease it, just, right? Yeah. To, yeah, to modify, modify their stress so they can affect the, you know, what it does to the body, right? It's all about being proactive and not being reactive. And so I wanted to talk about, um, I wanted to teach people about stress. To teach people about stress, you have to ask about it. So first you start asking about one of the, one of the questions on my questionnaire when people come in is, you know, out of 10, you know, um, 10 being the most amount of stress, give me a number of how stressed you feel you are, you know, and they'll go one, two, three, four, whatever have you. And certain diseases do make me question traumas, you know, so Another question that I added and I ask now all the time is, have you been through any emotional traumas? And some will say, well, yeah, yes, definitely. I lost my dad or blah, 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 blah. But some people will talk about, you know, things like recently I had somebody who talked about like, you know, a stillbirth, you know, and but has never, ever seeked help or talked about it to anyone professional, you know? And for me, when you look at process of disease. No disease happens overnight. It's like this, 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 that. And then that everyone's like, oh, doctor, now fix. But it's not the that that you have to fix. You have to fix it obviously in the acute, but it's the vices that led up to that, that you have to be aware of and look at modifying it so that, that that doesn't happen again and not with capital letters next time, right? It's the little this is. And I think if people understand that diseases are accumulative, we will have much more of an emphasis on prevention. And that's with everything. And so one of the things that we were talking about before we started recording was breaking of cycles. And I think as I've progressed in my my, uh, profession, I feel like I find myself wanting to there's an urge for me to talk about the breaking of cycles. And that comes with health as well, because prevention isn't just, oh, let's do mammograms and let's screen and do your colonoscopy, because that's what people are associating with the preventions. When you're at the age of 40 as a man, look at your prostate. When you're, you know, nobody's looking at the things that were happening in your youth that yes, you're resilient and it didn't create such a, a problem, but then you incorporate your first job and the stress of the job, and then you get married or your first relationship breakup, and then you have financial problems, and then you, what, all of that accumulates into something. Getting drunk and getting drunk for five, six, eight, ten, smoking, but I quit. Okay, you quit, but I mean, you smoked for 15 years before. Yes, you've done great for quitting now, but you can't. It's almost like saying, I'm going to say sorry to everything that I do. So as children, they'll be like, hey, mommy, sorry, sorry. After a while, you know, if you keep saying sorry, it's like, no, sorry doesn't erase what you did if you keep doing it just by saying the word. It's, it's almost like that. Yes, you can make changes, but certain things you also have to be appreciative before you start smoking, that knowing that smoking, you know, is associated with disease in one out of two people. That is a conscious and a, a, you, you know about it. You made that decision, right? But yes, you stopped and yes, it's not progressed, but there might be an accumulative effect of that. And that's where prevention of disease and lifestyle management and understanding those things has become so big in what I try and educate people, whether it's corporate, whether it's, you know, children at school, 
how are we going to break the cycle from the next generation? I care about how my kids are going to be, right? Yes, selfishly, they're my children. But that has made me question a lot of different things of what I want to change now for them to make sure that they don't have to go through the things that I'm seeing adults go through now in my experience. That needs education, right? Like these things are great, but we're not moving sometimes fast enough for my kids, you know? And that's where I feel like, hmm, I'm going to have to do it myself. Where can I do it? So when we look at something like stress, because I think everyone listening to this has experienced stress at some, in some shape or form. When we look at the difference between, uh, let's call it good stress and bad stress, because you have good stressors and then you've got bad and potentially chronic stress. How do we go about identifying um, at what point stress becomes bad? Question one. And question two would be, what are some of the physical implications of stress that we can pay attention to things that are not necessarily are not necessarily happening internally, but things that we can quickly notice and see. Okay, cool. You know, this is bad. So actually, it's such a it's a good question because you know when um, the lockdown happened, our clinic closed, and then we, it took a few weeks before um, we were allowed to do telemedicine consultations. And in those two weeks, I was like, wow, I realized how much I talk in clinic. Like, what am I going to do with my time? I'm going to have to do some videos. Let me, let me do some Instagram videos. And I'm not really that great on like Instagram or anything. But I was like, my first video was on stress because I found myself talking about that in clinic quite a lot. So I try and encourage people to think about stress as a bucket. We have one bucket and it's called stress. It's labeled stress. In that bucket, you have uncontrollable stress and you have controllable stress. So the uncontrollable stress are things like divorce, death, job, financial issues in that time. You can't really change it today. And then you have your controllable stresses. And for me, the controllable stresses are things that you do day to day, like how you sleep, how you eat, what you choose to drink and how much you choose to drink. Detoxification, your digestion, like things that you put in your mouth uh, that require detoxification. How you talk to people how you think and how you move, right? So I consider the seven daily multipliers is how I think of my controllable stresses. What things can you do well every day are these seven things. Now, there's no point in worrying about the uncontrollable stress as much as it's easy to say that because you can't actually control it. But the controllable ones, if you think of your bucket, the only way you're going to stop your bucket from overflowing that's in your control is to control the controllables, right? Now, most people, not most, quite a few people, when they're stressed, what do they do? I don't care about what I eat. I'm not going to sleep. I couldn't sleep. I was really stressed. I don't want to talk to anyone. I'm going to forget about exercise because I'm just not in the mood. What are they doing? They're letting go now of their controllable stresses. How is that going to manage the uncontrollable stress? So as an example that I often give is a paper cut. You have a paper cut and I've slept well. I'm not bloated. I'm hydrated. I've got my electrolytes with my friends. I've spent good quality time, slept really well, I'm energized. That paper cut's not going to do anything to me. Take another person, hasn't slept, is tired, is bloated, hasn't seen anyone for ages, feels like rubbish. That paper cut is going to be the stick that broke that camel's back. It's the same thing. If you manage your controllables, the uncontrollables are easier to manage. And that comes productivity, you know, anything in your day-to-day. If you can identify your controllable stressors, and you keep those on the right side of you, the uncontrollable stressors will be easier to manage. They will not seem as tough, relative, right? It's the same thing that I tell people even about, you know, in job situations, they're negotiables, they're non-negotiables. If you going into an interview, not knowing what your negotiables are, what your non-negotiables are, somebody else is going to run your life for you. 
then it's too late when you've accepted that job because you yourself has not defined your negotiables and your non-negotiables, you know? And I read this thing, actually, David introduced, he brought it up, but he said that, you know, when you go into interview and someone asks you, and we were going off topic, but I'll just very quickly say it, but, you know, uh, do you have any questions for me? A lot of times it'll be like, you know, how much will I be paid? Or, you know, it's those kind of questions. But nobody really asks, what will my day-to-day job look like? You know, nobody makes the other person feel like you're interviewing me, but I'm also interviewing you. This may not be the job for me and it may not be financial, you know? And that's something that, again, when you look at stressors, you know, I was part of this like, you know, panel discussion last week and we were talking about like, back in the day, we used to quiet quit. Mm. Now people are really happy to loud quit because you know what? That job wasn't good for me. I don't need it. I'll look for a job that's less paying, but I will look after myself because now people realize that long-term, especially since the pandemic, your health matters and health is not stress-free, right? Stress impacts health, you know? So how you sleep, look at it, eat, look at it you know, drink, look at it. And I'm not talking about just alcohol, but like water, electrolytes, you know, what do you choose to drink? You know, hydrate, detoxify. There's so many reasons why we have to think about hydration, you know, um, talking who your social, who's your social network. If you work eight hours, even in a job where you hate everybody that you're with, that's losing eight hours of social connection. Right. And that's why they think that smokers, actually in some way get more time off because they go for their smoke breaks. They hang out with somebody that they want to share this smoke break with. They have this little moment of like social, you know, but that actually positively impacts them. There's some place, some, I can't remember now, but there's, um, a, uh, I want to say a company in Japan, I want to think who's given their non-smokers an extra amount of time off a year compared to the people who smoke. So because they feel like it's not fair, you know? And so I feel like that's social. That's also really important. And, you know, thoughts, yeah, meditation, psychotherapy. I encourage all that stuff, you know, because I think that when you can feel and give someone your suitcases to hold for a short period of time, you'll be able to hold that suitcase longer. Not going to change it. Still going to have the same clothes. It's going to go through your stuff. And help you, you know, people on the outside have the clearest mind. So I encourage that too, you know, and movement. Now, movement's very interesting because people often think that all movement is the same and it's not. So when you go through burnout, for example, and a real adrenal fatigue, you know, long cardiovascular running and things like that may not be the right thing for you because you can't recover well enough, you know. So there are certain changes in movement or different types of movement that I recommend for different people, you know, uh, whether you're insulin resistant, whether you're, you know, but understanding that movement every day is really important. So when people just tell me, oh, but I walk around the house a lot, I always encourage people to get their trainers on, really make it feel like I'm doing, yes, I'm walking, but put your trainers on. This is an hour for you or whatever it is. It doesn't have to be running. It doesn't have to only be weight training. It doesn't have to be CrossFit. It doesn't have to be, but understanding movement is a good, is is very important to move first and then understand the different aspects of movement at different parts in your life, you know? Um, And I encourage that too. And sleep. I think people don't understand that sleep is a necessity. It is not a luxury, you know? And that's something that I always encourage my patients. And that's a really long question that I ask people, how do you sleep? And they all say, yeah, really good. Okay, then I go through it. What time do you go to bed? And do you fall asleep straight away? Do you wake up in the middle of the night to pee? And when you wake up, do you feel energized? Do you sweat at night? You know, do you itch at night? Do you snore? Do you grind your teeth? You know, I mean, I, what temperature is your room at? What do you eat before you go to bed? I, I really go through sleep because recovery also is something as I got older, I put a lot more emphasis on for myself, you know, and I feel Everybody should have that information. I talk to my children. I read them articles about their age, you know, what it means to have uninterrupted sleep. If you sweat at night, how cold it is, you know, what you eat. Like my kids know that for me, I don't sleep well if I have red meat at night. 
I have no issue with red meat, but for me, red meat's very energizing. So I have my red meat in the day. Chocolate, I used to be, you know, not a huge chocolate, but I would eat it at night. You know, the caffeine and the chocolate affects my sleep. When I've gone through all those different things, they hear that from me, you know, and that's education without sitting down to teach them. And I really encourage, you know, people to talk freely about things like that in front of their kids, no matter what age they are, because it becomes second nature to them. Yeah. You know, I love that you. So one thing that you mentioned that I have never thought about is this bucket concept with stress and the uncontrollable versus the controllable. I always look at that in life in general, like don't stress or worry about the things that you can't control and obviously control the controllables. And if you mess up on the controllables, right? So food, for instance, or sleep, it then becomes this vicious cycle. Like if I eat like crap for three days, now all of a sudden, my mood, my energy, my this, my that, it's all going to de decrease and it's going to add stress to, your, to, to, to that, you. To you be able to actually manage the uncontrollables. Yeah. It will feel far worse. Yeah. Now that feeling of far worse has just added to the whole bucket. The bucket's the same, right? I do the same when I talk about carbs, proteins, and fats. Oh, but fruit's a good, good, it's a good sugar. Oh, but honey's a good sugar. But no. So carb, protein, fats. I'm asking you just fill your buckets and tell me what bucket fills the most. And if one bucket fills over, you know, no matter how much you eat, no matter how many calories you have, but if your carbohydrate bucket is full and you look at your protein and you look at your fats and it ain't that full, that's not balance, right? And for me, that that actually video was three minutes. It was the least professional. Not that my videos are professional, but I, I was like drawing on a paper and I put it and I just was talking. And, but that video went to a lot of people. And I remember a friend of mine from university who lives in Manchester in UK, she sent me the video that her trainer sent her because it it just resonated with so many people. Uh, such a what you think is complex isn't as complex when you put it into like an easy format to say, okay, I don't, I don't need you to think about all the other things related to stress. I just need you to think about what are the things I can control daily and maybe not let go of those as much and give importance to those. And that in lockdown, if you looked, you had two types of people. You had those people who like gained 20 pounds mm -hmm. and, you know, really probably some of them lost their jobs. And there's some people who are like, wow, like I created this amazing routine. I spent time with my family. I realized I don't have to travel to America every day, like every week for these same meetings because I can do it on Zoom. And I've got my, you know, my routine fix. I realized that food, this is how, and they completely like lost 20 pounds and they felt really good and they created a great environment because they took an uncontrollable situation of the pandemic, controlled the things that they could, and they managed that situation as best as they could with least backfire. And yeah, those people just gave up on everything and they feel like they lost those two years. Yeah. Right. That's like, that, that's a huge, you know, if you think about that, that that's, it's hard to come back from those things. You know, and when you do, it takes time. It's going to take time to lose those 20 pounds. It's going to take time to, you know, get back into exercise because you kind of lost yourself in that time, you know? And I just think we're just not forward thinking enough. We're not fast moving dynamic enough. Now, I hope that the generations are, all of us, our generation, our older generation, younger generation are going to be dynamic because it's possible that maybe another pandemic is going to arise in our, what will we do in this situation? Hopefully we'll be more dynamic, proactive, and not so reactive, you know? When it comes to like these controllable things like sleep and like nutrition and like movement and stuff like that, if someone's listening to this now and they're like, okay, cool, I sleep four hours a night or I eat junk four days in the week or I don't move enough. Like when you speak to patients like that, or if you have advice for the listeners, like what's sort of the first step? Because the thing is, is like, it's so easy to then say, like if someone comes to me and says, oh, Stefan, you know, I'm not sleeping well, um, or I'm not moving enough. I'm like, well, like you should work out four times a week for 45 minutes and you should do X, Y, and Z. They're going to look at that and be like, oh my God, like wow. that's never overwhelming. Or, or they're going to be like, yes, I'm going to commit to it. Then they're going to fail and they're going to be demotivated. And then it all of a sudden becomes much more of a challenge. So I normally go through 
say like my entire like questionnaire and then I will look at different things and I will say, so if say somebody says I sleep four hours, you know, look, let's be honest. They're not going to go from four to seven. They're not, but can they go from four to five? Maybe. Now, why are they only sleeping four hours? Like that's another question. So I had somebody who says, you know, I sleep uh, like, you know, four or five hours, but I wake up and then I, when I go through questioning, I realize that they're actually really hot. And I'm like, well, what temperature do you sleep? And they're like 23, 24. I'm like, okay, well, for the, now I'd like for you to sleep between 18 and 20 degrees. You know, and they came to see me recently, like, well, I sleep seven hours straight. Okay, let's look at that. Okay, I'll look at things like, okay, why else? You know, if you're stressed. So coming back to stress and sleep, and a lot of people think, oh, I'm so much more active at night. You know, I'm a night owl, I work. But stress and cortisol, when cortisol at night is too high because of like long-term crop chronic high cortisol, there comes a point in, you know, the stress management where cortisol at night becomes too high. And those people are tired, but wired. Is it like physical tiredness, mental wiredness? They want, they would love to sleep, but they can't shut off their brain. They're like, my brain's just going dun, 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 you know? And that's because cortisol is way too high. And then those people, I would be like, okay, I'll talk about food, what they eat. I'll talk about like, you know, um, blue light blocking glasses or, you know, red light blocking glasses, or I'll put them on things like uh, magnesium, depending on, you know, most people I would put on magnesium, to be fair. Uh, timing of magnesium will depend on do they struggle to fall asleep or struggle to stay asleep. Different types of magnesium for different people. Um, I will talk about some people drink tons of water just before they go to bed and they think, oh, I'm just hydrating myself. I try and educate people like we are designed to sip throughout the day. We are not designed to go. You don't remember me and go, oh my God, I forgot. You said two liters. Oh, I've only had one. I'm going to have one now. You know, you're just going to, yes, you're going to pee throughout the night, you know, um, red meat at night. Some people, you know, chocolate, some people, caffeine, you know, th there are loads of different things that I'll educate people, but, but the tired and the wired people, we talk a lot more about stress management. So they need help to wind down. So what are the things that we can change? So if they're working when they put the kids to bed and then they work for a bit, we still need to have a cutoff, right? And, you know, also when you cut off, do I want you to go and, I don't know, watch like CSI Miami before you go to bed? No, probably not. I don't want it to be so active and you to be, you need to really think about how am I shutting off the system? You will be then, I'll think about more red meat, uh, white meat and carbohydrates, at night because it raises serotonin, tryptophan, and then help you to manage sleep. You sleep full, you sleep happy, but I don't usually have like sugar throughout the day. So what's happening to your carbohydrate management throughout the day? And I'll, you know, I'll change various different things. But for me, sleep becomes a first priority before even movement. Because mm. some people feel like, you know, if I train, you can out train a bad diet. You can, no, you, you, you might train seven hours a week. But what are you doing for the rest of the hours? Even one hour a day, you think you still have 23 hours. Do you think what you did that one hour a day is going to offset 23 hours? No, it's not. You cannot out-train a bad diet. And one of the things Charles Baldwin told me and taught all of us um, was 80% of what you look like is what you eat, how you eat it, all your other lifestyle, 20% is training right? We put far, especially in Dubai, I mean, every other person is at a gym. I and mean, we have so many gyms. It's the biggest, I, 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 when I, when we first moved here, David was like, oh my God, everybody has personal trainers. Like it's not the same in London. No. Like here people have personal trainers, they train, try Dubai is one of the biggest, you know, um, triathlete groups in the world. We have phenomenal like athletes in the region, marathon, ultra marathon, da, da, da. We, and we have a lot of sport, but we don't have the same kind of you know, again, you think about triathletes, they can, yes, they need to fuel, but you know what? A lot of them fuel on rubbish because all they think about is carbs and think performance. No one's thinking performance and health, right? Like no one's thinking, okay, well, what am I putting in this? Like, you know, um, whatever sugar filled, blah, blah, blah. And how far is that taking me? Are there other better options while I fuel around my train? You know, these pasta parties have gone on for you know, decades, who's going to break that cycle? Do you think every single, you know, marathon runner should be having pasta before they start a marathon? No, no, it's not good for everyone. Let's be honest, but there's no provision for any other type of person because that's what we did traditionally, but that's not what we need to do 
for the future, you know? So like, I mean, we've, we've talked about lots of different things, but sleep's a big priority. Understanding recovery versus sleep. So sleep does not mean you recover. Yeah. Quality of sleep has become so important. That's why we have so many trackers now. Right. And I remember meeting one of the investors of Aura Ring before it came out. And I was at this biohacking conference in Sweden and I met him and we spoke loads. And I think it must have been the first generation Aura Ring. Like now we're on what, three or four. And we had a, a conversation and I was, I was blown away by the fact that they designed a tracker for recovery. Yeah. Yeah. That's telling you something. So when people say, oh, but I have a garment. Well, no, no. The garment's not a tracker for recovery. The aura ring is designed just for recovery. For me, that's special, right? It's infrared driven. So the people who are sensitive to EMF doesn't have that. Um, and the emphasis is on quality of sleep and it's like HRV. I mean, yes, you had a lot of endurance runners that were aware of HRV, but you know, this had HRV, it had your temperature in it. You know, you're, you know, where in the middle of the night did you drop to your lowest heart rate? And so what you did during the day in terms of lifestyle will play a part in your recovery on the aura. Like for me, you know, I love that, like that concept. Now I tried to get it into a lot of corporate, when I did a lot of corporate um, programs, but it's hard to like encourage people to wear a thick ring. Right. Um, but, you know, the concept of the aura ring, I think, is pretty special. And I think the fact that they designed something for recovery tells you how important recovery is. And I think what's cool about that, like when I started wearing my whoop, for instance, it almost like gamifies your life because you you wake up and you look at like your recovery score and you look at your sleep and you look at all these things. And obviously it gives you the questionnaire of like, did you, did you do this? Did, did you do X? Did you do Y? And you just start playing around with this. Like I started looking at something that you mentioned, which is like my turn down routine in the evening. Mm -hmm. right? Like for me, it's pretty specific where, okay, cool. Like put the temperature of the room down, have my reishi, like reishi tea, meditate, no screens, deep stretching, blah, blah, blah. These are all things that work for me personally, might not work for everyone. But I started realizing this and magnesium. I started realizing that if I skip out on this, and I go from, you know, watching CSI to lying in bed. Um, my whoop scores are all Different. off, 100%. right? And so having something like a tracker, just to your point, and understanding your sleep cycles and understanding your REM sleep and whatever else uh, is so important. And, and, and to your point, like now that you started talking about it, it makes sense to me as well. Like sleep should be the first thing. Because I feel like everything, like like my diet and my movement and my this and my that, would impact my sleep, right? And if my sleep is not, if my sleep is optimized and my recovery is amazing, it's likely that like the rest of my lifestyle has followed. Correct. And I think like obviously you're going for, and I'm sure the listeners know of what you're going to, what you're training for right now. But the more emphasis you put on your recovery, your performance the following day will improve. So if the performance the following day improve, you are moving forward in your progressive training, you will reach where you need to earlier, yeah. right? Like, so for me, and so that means on the day of what you're trying to achieve, if you accumulate it because your periodized training is extended because you're doing an endurance event. So we're looking at like a year of training, those micro improvements on race day is going to be huge yeah and you see that with like like i saw it today so i did a 15 kilometer run this morning in the heat and my hydration was off yesterday because i was out and like i was just out with friends and like we just didn't have enough water on the table for yeah. me to drink and my diet was off i just i didn't eat what i would have liked to eat at home i had to eat out and immediately you see the difference mm -hmm. right so that's one thing but then if you look at it from a broader picture if I have a big race, now whether it's 100K, whether it's a marathon, half marathon, whatever, if my diet is off for the whole week, right? Or for the whole, like one of the days of that week leading up to the race, my nutrition is off, my hydration is off, I'll feel it on race day. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult because people don't necessarily, if you don't know, you don't know because like, you haven't done it. But like I did this post actually just literally, I think this week, where I talked about when you plan an endurance event, 
you get a coach. Your coach tells you, gives you your program. It's all periodized over your entire training. Your training, you maybe get somebody to help you with your nutrition, your fueling, your recovery, because you're, you know, well-educated in terms of, you know, sport and stuff like that. And you look at all those different things for this this race. And this race is because you just do whatever it takes that you can complete this race and you don't hit that wall, right? Like that's the whole plan. It's like, I need to complete. I'll do whatever it takes for this to happen. But we're doing that for this endurance event that might be in a year. We don't look at our life as an endurance event. We don't do it like that. Why? Why don't we look at those things and look at our life being the endurance event? And I posed that question. I was like, is it because we don't get a medal? Is it because we live on imitation and there's just not enough people doing it. So we also don't follow like, you know, what is it about life and not looking at life as the best race of your life? And you want to do the best you can in this one race. And again, that's breaking the cycle. Yeah. I, the, one of the main reasons I signed up for the hundred K is because I needed to become, I knew I needed to become a different person to finish Mm -hmm. that race. Right. So I needed to improve all areas of my life. You're the and same person. You're the same person. You're just becoming dynamic and actually optimizing different aspects of your life. Exactly. And it's not like those those aspects of my life were bad by any means, but I knew there was improvement that was hundred percent. And that's like, but that's that's a journey, right? Like this is gonna be part of your life journey. At this point, I went and I was about to do a 100K. I did da da da. So this is what I learned from it. Like all the stuff that you're learning, you're gonna keep a lot of it right? Not all of it. You're not going to be running all the time, but you're going to keep a lot of it, you know? But most people, if you think, I try and educate people in clinic and be like, think of this as a lifestyle. Don't think of this as a diet. Yeah. I was going to ask you more about particularly on nutrition. Obviously there's certain principles. There's a lot, there's, there's some principles that apply to pretty much everybody. And then there's some like key things within nutrition that are different for everyone. How do you go about one, I suppose your recommendation to clients and how personalized that becomes? I mean, if someone comes to me, I mean, like back in the day, I used to be a lot more body comp. Now I see a lot of really sick people. So it's a little bit different, but I try and educate people uh, on a base and then you optimize it for yourself. So I always talk and try and educate people on protein, what it is to me and what I think is important, fats, good fats. What does that mean? Not shy away from fats, you know, like back in the day, the whole low fat fat and try and educate people on that. That's really old fashioned, um, carbohydrates and what it is and the importance of carbs and importance of fiber, uh, importance of like, you know, your, all, all your nutrients, your vitamins and blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. So I try and educate them on what they're for and what is, but I also educate people on when you have carbs, I try and educate people on the need for insulin to balance your blood sugar. So what does that mean? Because I think people often, you know, there are a lot of people who walk around thinking I'm a hangry person. If I don't get food on time, I go crazy and I become this like, you know, and that's a problem, right? You didn't, you weren't born hangry, right? Your lifestyle up until today has made you this hangry because your blood sugar is not balanced. So that's a question I always ask, you know, do you get hangry? And some people who do, you realize that they cannot manage their blood sugar. So insulin comes to the rescue, you know, overrides the blood sugar, the blood sugar drops too low. The first thing you want is more sugar because you're having a blood sugar low. And, you know, one of the things that I stuck with when Charles talked a lot about carbohydrates was about balance of blood sugar. What can I eat throughout the day that keeps my blood sugar relatively stable throughout the day? That's important for me to like, educate people on. So that's one thing. Uh, Training on MT, not training on MT. It really depends on the person. Intermittent fasting. That's another thing that I don't, you know, people get really proud when they tell me they're intermittent fasting. Like I'm not always that proud, you know, not everyone can tolerate intermittent fasting. You reach the point where you're like thinking, oh my God, I need to change my body. Let's intermittent fast. Well, no, whatever you did for the last 20 years, has resulted in something for you to start starving yourself for an extended period of time isn't going to offset that. So we got to look at where you are today. And if you're somebody who can intermittent fast well or not, a lot of women can't, not every day. And intermittent fasting isn't let's only eat a short window. So I always want to know your eating window. So when people are really proud and say, sometimes I fast like, you know, 18, 20 hours, well, no, you're eating four hours 
right? Like that's more fasting that there is eating. But also when you break your fast, say you do a 16-8, you break your fast and then you wait eight hours and you have your second, the body has no clue. You've just created a fast within a fast. Body doesn't know what you're doing, right? It likes routine. You know, we are circadian rhythm driven individual eating. Once you break your fast, eat regularly until you stop. What does failure look like in intermittent fasting? So if someone's listening to this and they were like, well, I'm doing it because everyone's told me to do it. And I think it's a good thing, but I feel fill in the blank. Do you know what? If you feel hungry, no, you're doing it. It's not right for you. Like you need to, you need to, hunger is a stress. So I'm all about stress management. Okay. So if you feel hungry and you're pushing, it's different if you're on a a lower calorie, you know, whatever diet and you want to lose weight for a certain reason and you're a little bit hungry. Yes. I mean, if you've been eating till you've been stuffed the whole time and you don't know the difference between stuffed, satisfied, hungry, you need to find your place on that, you know, emotional journey related to food. But if you're, always waiting to break your fast and you're starving, but, and you're looking at your time and clock. Yeah. That's a problem. Yeah. No. If you're fasting within a fast, because you think, you know what, I'm going to eat at 12 and I'm going to eat to eight and you don't eat in between. That's terrible. When you do break your fast and you're eating all the rubbish, but it's within this time frame, you haven't learned anything, right? It's all about quality of nutrition. Again, not working. If you're waking up in the middle of the night, hungry, that's a problem. You've not regulated your blood sugar. If you're constipated, you've not regulated your blood, you know, there are a lot of aspects to it. If your period changes, think about it. It's being stressful. Maybe not, you know, hormone, people develop thyroid problems for sure. Women, especially in terms of like, you know, intermittent fasting for long, you know, I, I just don't agree with a movement. Everything has to be individual. Just because Joe Bloggs did it and he lost loads of weight doesn't mean you're going to. And if you do, what about the rebound? Nobody thinks about it. We're so short term. I see so many people who've been on stage, physique competitors, looked great on stage, rebounded terribly. That's a problem. If you have to diet and then you binge for like two weeks on end after your show, and you think that you're just going to be so resilient, it's not going to affect you. It is going to affect you, right? Like, I'm not saying that there are moments, if your goal and that's your profession is to go and you're on show or whatever, but even these bodybuilders who are, you know, Arnold Classics and all this kind of stuff, they're, it's a sport and a sport that has a periodized training. It's not a two-month challenge. In three months, I'm going on stage. Boom. Do you see that a lot here, right? Like they're with a trainer and they're like, diet, 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 photo shoot. Mm. Professionals, a year. Now they may go up and down their body fat, but their body fat won't go from like six to 25. They may be like sitting at like 15, 16% or 15%, still relatively lean to the average person. And that's because we just look we're just so vanity driven that the internal aspect is, is really not, we're not proactive. And that comes, that comes down to like why I try and educate people like after the age of 30 it is to do full medicals. You know, I, I kind of tell them that I would do a full medical. Why? Because it's not about what's in and out the range now. It's if every year you do it and you start seeing that this is slowly creeping up, we can do something about it. What am I doing that is making this creep up? I don't want to wait till it's out of range to be like, mm. I want to actually like decrease it and get it back. Let me change my lifestyle. That's being proactive and not reactive. And I think people do their 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 medicals when they have a problem. Mm, too late. That's too late. I don't know how long you've had that problem. Whereas, you know what? If it's all being normal and then tomorrow, like two years later, it's not, I can be like, okay, well, yeah, in 2019, things were really good. So this being, you know, we can actually calculate where the problem went. Do you know what I mean? Um, and again, people don't do that. Do you think it's, it's, um, I, I wanted to talk about blood work. Mm-hmm. Like, in, what are your, I guess, your recommendations in terms of like frequency of blood work and like what we sort of need to look at? Because I, I do blood work relatively frequently, especially now, because like with the training, mm-hmm. I know I get depleted. Like my magnesium levels were low and I'm like, I take so much magnesium. But day to day, your magnesium is depleted, right? Like our food's not enriched in magnesium. 
any form of stress depletes magnesium. I mean, magnesium is depleted so easily, yeah. let alone you sweating for like buckets and ends exactly. and then training and then the stress of training. Yeah. So in terms of blood work, like for someone listening to this who might have never gone and done it, like what what sort of blood work should they look at? Should it just be like one of those comprehensive tests? And- it depends on your age, really. Like, you know, I really like... You know, under the age of, say, 25, if they've never done one and they're pretty, you know, it depends. It depends on the people that I see. So I often see either really young kids, like kids with problems. So if I bleed a child and I'm doing, say, food sensitivity, I'll run their nutrients because most often than not, it's about digestive health with kids. Yeah. If if I look at like autoimmunity with kids, I mean, recently saw a child with uh, alopecia, like lost all his hair. And then you know, I know it's gut related. I'll, I'll look at nutrients and I'll do that kind of stuff with them. Um, after the age of 30, I always think that, yeah, running a full panel is really good because where are we going to stop? Like, so over the years I've curated my own panel and I'll look at everything from like, you know, cholesterol and particle size sugars, not just sugars, like are your sugars normal? I also look at like how hard is your body working to keep this blood sugar normal? Cause I want to preempt the sugar to go up. Right. So I look at insulin resistance. I look at, I really try and like look at a lot of uh, areas in terms of um, sugar management. Uh, I look at inflammatory markers too. I look at a lot more nutrients than I think most people look at. Like I will look at like the mag and the zinc, but I look at the cellular mag and zinc, not not the serum. Um, I'll look at like obviously hormonally, I look at your thyroid. I look at the full thyroid panel. I look at your stress hormones, liver function, kidney function, you name it. And the idea is to kind of get it on the map for you, right? Like to start off somewhere. Where's your baseline? How can you tell me you're really healthy? Loads of people come in and be like, I eat really healthy. You're not what you eat. You're what you absorb, right? So absorption is far more important than even what you eat. But nobody's thinking that. You know, I sleep really well. Yeah, okay. How much do you drink? Not enough. Okay, you know all this, but what changes have you made? So I like to put things because data doesn't lie on one hand, but I don't only treat paper. So that's why the combination of the person and their results matter. So if something's out, but the patient has no symptoms of it, I will wait. But I will wait knowing that it's something that we have to relook at. I don't forget, but I won't create fear. That's another thing with functional medicine and integrative medicine. I don't go down the fearful that's something that's changed. I've probably evolved for more. I don't I don't create fear in people because fear is a stress. What do you mean by creating fear? So like, oh my God, like don't breathe this air because like, you know, your air your air is going to create cancer or don't like, don't eat too much red meat because red meat is blah, blah, blah. And don't, I don't, I, I don't, I don't wash all your, you know, because of the like, you know, must eat organic. Or you must, if you don't eat organic, you know, you're going to get like mercury. Like I don't, I'll educate people on where the knowledge comes from, but I don't create fear. Control the controllables. Yeah, again, fear. I just, where am I going to, where, where are you going to stop? You know, I really believe everything is, stress is one of the, the, the most, the silent killer because you can't see it. You can't, you know, so people are just like, and we're all in the same sort of like, you know, but individually what breaks us down that has a big contributing factor. So when we look at like aging, anti-aging, you look at the, I don't know, the blue zones in the rest of the world, the centurions and so on and so forth. And you look at different things. Like why can't there be bigger blue zones? Why can't we break the cycle? And why are we only labeling them? And like, what are we doing different? And, you know, where can we lessen the blow? I'm not saying to correct it, but where can we, you know, shave off some of these excess. If we keep doing it every year and we collectively do it and we educate more people, I really believe like the future could be a lot more hopeful than sometimes we feel by looking at the news and everything that's going around. And I want that for my kids. Yeah, totally. You know, I I, I do. I really think that stress, stress management, uh, you know, yes, there's a great, I mean, with a month, if I said mental health awareness and things, and we talk about it, everyone's talking about it. But we're not, we're not yet actioning it as much as I feel we could, you know? And I feel like, you know, now when I look at my children and we were saying this earlier before we started recording, you know, I 
I'm really up for my kids seeing a counselor and talking about their feelings and it's not taboo. You speak as much as you need speaking. Yeah. Let's just talk about what you're feeling like. Build your toolbox, you know, of different ways in which you can tackle this world. And the more you have in your toolbox, you will find it not overwhelming. And therefore the uncontrollables won't be as scary over time because you got a lot of stuff to manage the controllables. Totally. Yeah, it starts from the beginning, you know, the beginning of the cycle. Yeah. So we've been speaking for an hour already, and I can speak to you for like three. I told you I can, I really do, don't stop talking. No, but I, I think you've provided us with some really, really valuable tools. And I think it might be best to invite you back for another episode, because I would love to double click more on breaking cycles. I think it's something that would be very important for, for our listeners to to go into as well and seeing how they can break their own cycles or the cycles of the people around them. I love that. Yeah, for sure. Where, if there's a place, where can people find you online? Uh, I'm, I mean, I have a clinic in healthcare city. Uh, I also am on Instagram. It's Dr. Chef. Um, and, uh, you can email me, uh, but really my clinic is in healthcare city. It's called Institute for Biophysical Medicine. Um, but I'm online. I mean, if you look for my name, you'll find me. Um, and then reach out. Like, I'd love to hear from you. We will disclose all these links in the description. So if you're listening to this, just check the description out and, and you'll find all the details there. Dr. Chef, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. 